They say that life is like a box of chocolates. If we were to take that literally, whose life would we find from an empty chocolate tin? That was the question that led me on an adventure to hear about the history of World War II chocolate. It's kind of like an affordable drug of choice, I guess you could frame it that way. Eventually leading me to multi-generational stories about a grandmother in a chocolate factory. It was sort of probably as stringent, if not more so, than a convent. (laughs) So my mom loved chocolate because of that. That's all after this. Welcome to Object Obscura. This is the historical investigative podcast about people, objects, and their stories. I'm your host, Thatcher Warwick Hess. Episode 7, Nougat, Nurse, New Jersey. The object we're talking about today goes way back. I'm not talking about its age, but when I bought it. I was a young kid at an antique flea market in California. Essentially, I was a kid in a candy store, but I didn't know that in a few minutes, I would actually find something related to candy history. This was in 2010, when I stumbled upon a booth with shiny metal tins from different eras, On a wooden ladder rested two World War II circular chocolate tins. One was larger than my head and too expensive, but the other one was smaller, still about the size of a dinner plate, with an eye-catching decal of an eagle on the front. I flipped the tin around and saw an inscription etched on the bottom. From Monk Hubby to Francie Wifey, Fort Dix, New Jersey, March 1942. The words hubby and wifey are in parentheses, almost like the inscriber is making sure the reader knows who is who. You know, it's got the inscription in there that makes it very clear that it's a gift. This is Sarah Wasberg Johnson, a food historian, author, and podcaster. I found her show History Bites online, where each episode she dives into the history of food and nutrition from the first half of the 20th century. I hope to get more background information on wartime chocolate, Maybe that could help me return this gift back to the soldier who scrawled on it in 1942. I wonder if somebody used it as like a writing table. Sarah and I spoke on Zoom, and I actually had the tin in front of me to show her on the camera. We had some theories for the personal hubby message on the back and the other scribbles of half-finished words. This monk soldier most likely used a pen knife for his marital message, but the other scribbles were different, probably written after the chocolates were eaten with a ballpoint pen. The face of this tin is striking. The famous eagle holding the E Pluribus Unum scroll in its mouth is flanked by four American flags. In bold text it says, U.S. Army, Armed Forces of the United States, Assorted Chocolates, Two Net Pounds. In an abstract fashion, there are geometric shapes around the eagle, showing the colors of red, chrome gold, and blue. It's almost in the shape of a V. So the top of the tin is interesting to me because in World War II in the United States, there's a recurring motif of V for victory. 
This V-shape she mentions on the tin is really interesting, because I only found one other tin like this online. It was on a message board of all places. The one they posted was a cartoon eagle, nothing like the stoic and lifelike bird on my tin, but it had the same colors and the V-shaped design. When you lay the tin down with the decal facing up, there's an ingredients list and a maker's mark on the edge of the lid. The company that made these sweets was the Boston-based manufacturer Miller & Hollis. On some of the tins, like the other Victory one on that message board, they had company stickers placed on top. So Miller & Hollis, there's very little about them on the internet as we found. So some of these companies that maybe they might have popped up specifically because of the war, I kind of wonder if it wasn't a government contract specifically to make for the armed forces. I was fascinated by this idea of a government-created confection company. I actually reached out to other food historians and realized that this was a reality. Miller & Hollis was created in 1939, most likely as a means to receive government contracts for the war effort. These contracts were the lifeline for smaller companies like Miller & Hollis. The larger chocolate companies would bid on these contracts of their smaller offshoot branches so that the government could give them soon-to-be rationed resources in the early 1940s. One of the most important ingredients that was rationed in World War II was sugar. You just have alternatives to sugar, and this is true in both wars. Um, sugar is actually the only food that was mandatory rationed during World War I in the United States for the general public. On my tin, next to the small white Miller & Hollis words, was a list of 13 ingredients. Chocolate, sugar, honey, dextrose, corn syrup, molasses, powdered egg whites, salt, milk solids, nuts, fruits, artificial flavors and colors, and other ingredients. Kind of a strange list for chocolates. The ingredients on the tin include honey and molasses, and those yeah. are not typically <laughs> uh, ingredients that you see in chocolate. Normally it's just sugar. This is why these chocolates were most likely ration friendly meaning that it included alternative ingredients that were otherwise in short demand throughout the world. And so companies had to make sugar alternatives. Right, yeah. so honey, molasses, maple syrup, corn syrup, those were all sugar alternatives. Sugar was not the only thing that had alternatives during wartime. There were other types of military rationed resources, bread, milk, fabric, and even certain metals, like the one my tin is made of. Uh, rationing voluntary in World War I, mandatory in World War II, was implemented to free up kind of finite food supplies to send to our allies overseas and also to feed our troops. I went back to the message of Monk and Francie on the bottom of this tin. I've had this chocolate tin for over a decade. Now, 10 years later, the names Monk and Francie ring in my head. They're people I don't know or may never find but the itch to hear their story is powerful. I parsed each segment of the message. It seems to be of a married couple where Monk, the hubby, is stationed at Fort Dix, New Jersey, and Francie, the wifey, is receiving these chocolates he sent to her as a gift. I actually started investigating this tin in August of 2020, hoping that it could be in season one of this show. I created a spreadsheet of every Monk that was possibly related to this tin and amassed 15 possible names. I then scoured through draft cards, newspapers, military documents, and obituaries, but nothing matched with the timeline. Only three people named Monk were stationed at Fort Dix before March of 42, but their signatures and wives' names didn't match. I took the lid off of the tin as well. The first time I opened it, I could still smell the sweet odor of milk chocolate and sugar. There was nothing inside, but I was surprised the smell stayed in there for over 75 years. 
Now, the smell is gone, just like any last remnants of Mr. Monk and Mrs. Francie. The biggest issue with finding the real couple is that Monk and Francie are most likely nicknames. Monk could be a moniker in quotes, usually not registered in official documents, and Francie could be Frances, Francis, or just Fran. I had so many tangential leads. One of the monks I found worked in the US government in the 1960s and had a wife named Francis, but he married her in 46 and enlisted in the Navy, not him. Another was a soldier named Furman Monk from Fort Dix who went to a jazz concert. And one of the singers there was named Mrs. Francis Francis. I know, crazy, right? However, they were both married to different people at the time. Not him either. The last attempt at this monk mystery compelled me to write a letter to a family in North Carolina. The son, whose parents were named Francis and Robert Monk, wrote back to me. The writing does not sound like my dad. My mother's name was Francis, but I never heard him call her Francie or Wifey. He also pointed out that a man with the last name Monk would not sign off with that last name if it was a gift. Not him either. With all the leads drawing up, I tried one last thing, the Fort Dix Army Base in central New Jersey. The base historian of the Fort Dix Army Base got back to me. James Warwick, no relation to me, responded with some links to other databases. He finished in the email, I'm sure it's a needle in a haystack, but it's not impossible. Then I contacted a genealogist to weigh in and give me some insight. And her email was not as promising. Even though she did find another monk with a wife's name Fanny, it also didn't pan out. She wrote back to me, There's not enough information here. I expect anyone could have ended up at Fort Dix, so I wouldn't exclude people who didn't enlist there. I hope you figure it out. But I haven't yet. This monk and Francie couple are still unfound. I did not find the consumers of the chocolate, but I may have found someone who made it. When and where were you born and raised? I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and I lived in East Boston, and then my college years, my mother and I lived in the back bay, the Fenway section. The voice you hear answering the question is Leonora Wilden. She was interviewed here in 2006. It was for a Rosie the Riveter project conducted by students at the County College of Morris in New Jersey. Leonora was not only a nurse for wounded soldiers in the U.S., but in Germany as well. She reminisces about her cadet nurse corps training in 1943, when she was just 16 years old. It was sort of probably as stringent, if not more so, than a convent. <laughs> you know, scrubbing floors was not unknown either. Leonora would then become a member of council and the first woman mayor of Randolph, New Jersey, where County College of Morris is located. We're actually not here to discuss Leonora's amazing career, but her mother's. Listen carefully to the next couple sentences. My father was a barber. My mother was, had six children. I'm the youngest of six. And then when the Depression came, she went to work in um, a chocolate factory. She worked uh, in what's now Havon Chocolates. It was Miller and Hollis. So Leonora's mother, Anna, probably worked for Miller and Hollis from 1939 until after the war when the confection company was bought. This is the company that made this chocolate tin for the war effort, or as Leonora puts it. And they used to make uh, some of the candy for the servicemen. You may have heard Leonora say that Miller and Hollis today is called Haviland Chocolates. That may sound familiar with the Haviland Thin Mints you can buy today, 
But that current product has decades of hidden corporate secrets. I had been so focused on the wrong names from this tin. Never mind Monk and Francie, I was on a search for Miller and Hollis. I did some digging and found that Miller and Hollis made chocolates for Haviland from 1943 until the late 40s. Haviland was everywhere, newspaper ads for Mother's Day and Easter. Each illustrated ad had the large fancy Haviland logo that overshadowed the small Miller and Hollis words on the bottom. I found they also made fudge and nougat with that Haviland logo in shiny silver and gold wrappers. Today, with, there's been a ton of corporate consolidation, um, and now you have these multinational brands that control huge chunks of our food production and food marketing. After World War II, an influx of larger confection companies bought the smaller ones. This is exactly what happened with Miller and Hollis right at the end of the 1940s. Um, but I did find reference to that they were purchased at some point by the New England Confectionery Company, uh, which most people know best as NECO. NECO seems to have been the larger business of Haviland and Miller and Hollis, but it recently went under in a huge economic fiasco. 2018, they were sold to Roundhill Investments, which then went into bankruptcy like the oh, same great. month. Um, and Spangler Candy Company bought them out. So I reached out to the Spangler Candy Company. They told me to talk to their trade organization who never answered the phone. One candy that Spangler recently bought out of the NECO purchase was a hard candy called Mary Jane Taffy's. They were created by a Bostonian man in the 1880s. His name was Charles H. Miller. There's no record of this father, whose son had the same name, being the names of Miller and Hollis, but it is still possible. I listened to the full hour and 19 minute interview with Leonora Wilden, but that mention of Miller and Hollis was fleeting. In that interview, Leonora is about 80 years old, born in 1926. I was curious to hear directly from her or anyone in the Wilden family about Miller and Hollis. I looked up Leonora's name in a directory and it said that she was still alive. So I sent her a letter. Turns out I was too late. My name is Susan Wilden. My mother recently passed away and I was at her house and I got a letter from you. Yeah, she passed away about a couple days ago. <laughs> this is Leonora's daughter, Susan, the granddaughter of Anna, who worked at Miller & Hollis. She told me that her mom had been suffering with dementia for the last five years. She was basically a vegetable. I mean, she couldn't, you know, have a conversation or anything. So she wouldn't have been able to talk about Miller & Hollis, even if she was still alive. This is why that interview, filmed 15 years ago, is so fascinating. Here's her daughter Susan again. I was closer to my dad than my mother. In one part of Leonore's interview, I can sense some of the disconnect in their mother-daughter relationship when this question is asked to Leonora. Do you have, do you have a daughter? Yes, I do. All right. Do you think that your family history affected what she chose to do with her life? I would have liked her to be a nurse, but she was interested in ballet. So Susan was a ballerina who studied in Belgium and did ballet until her mid-30s. When I spoke with Susan about her life, she shared some memories that her mom remembered about Anna working at Miller & Hollis. I know my grandmother, my Nana, as we called her, she was from Boston, and I believe that's where my grandmother 
worked in the chocolate factory. Anna was born in 1894 from Sardino, Italy, a small town 30 miles east of Naples. After immigrating through New York in 1901, life got a lot harder for young Anna because her mother died a year later. She then moved to Boston and had Leonora in 1926, the last of six kids. In the 1930s, since Leonora was the youngest child, she had to help her mom out with rent. It seemed that things changed when Leonora's mom got the job at Miller and Hollis. I believe she wrapped them up for the people, you know. I mean, that was her job at the candy factory was, you know, packaging stuff. So Actually, one 1942 Boston newspaper bulletin was looking for experienced dippers and packers for Miller and Hollis. So maybe Anna saw that same advertisement. Here's Susan again. All I remember really was my mom talking about unwrapping the chocolates that Anna got to bring home. I guess they got to keep the leftovers or or you know the discarded ones that weren't packaged. So my mom loved chocolate because of that. After the depression into the 1940s, there was a rampant change in food distribution and consumption. Here is Sarah, the food historian we heard earlier in the episode. Really in the United States, candy and confection in general, we had extremely high consumption levels. So we were some of the highest per capita consumers in the world. Sarah told me that the reason for this was actually because of the temperance movement and prohibition. A lot of that had to do actually with prohibition. Uh, I think it's kind of like trading one vice for another. So people are like replacing their alcohol addiction with a sugar addiction. So we got kind of hooked on sugar. It's kind of like a affordable drug of choice, I guess you could yeah. frame it that way. When I spoke with Susan months later, there were some interesting parallels to the sugar addiction about her mom, Leonora. One of her favorite things to eat, she always loved chocolate graham crackers and I think she got that from <laughs> Her mother Anna having worked in the chocolate factory. Susan told me that her mom was strict about eating healthy, but did let her and her brothers have chocolate on most holidays. She was a nurse, so, you know, she, she placed a value on eating correctly, which sort mm-hmm. of backfired on her, you know. In reality, this all backfired on soldiers and people at home during World War II because of the new alternatives of food production pushed for the war effort. With resources becoming hard to buy, many people turned to their backyards. What can we do to help win the war with food? The answer to that challenge, Victory Gardens. That's the answer. We can grow food for victory in our own backyards. So they encourage people to plant Victory Gardens to consume vegetables to kind of make up the difference. With our own hands, we can grow the gardens of victory. These Victory Gardens were essential during this time, especially in rural cities where farmers already had a plot of land used in the 1930s. Many of these PSA videos championed growing greens, corn, and carrots. The irony of all of this is that at the same time, sweets and chocolate started to become nationally popular in the US and candy was advertised as healthy too. And there was a lot of interest in sugar as an energy source, right? That was more conventional nutritional wisdom in the first half of the 20th century that sugar was good. This is why assorted chocolate tins like this Miller and Hollis one 
show us the early beginnings of wartime nutrition as an industry. I think the soldiers had a lot to do with that, right? Because chocolate was a big thing to ship off to soldiers. So it became an industry. It really sort of blossomed. That's exactly what happened. Chocolate ration kits made their way to soldiers across the Pacific and Europe. Those were made to withstand extreme temperatures and designed to taste awful. Although the chocolates that existed in my tin were tastier, it was still in the early stages of confection experimentation. People were in the middle of a Great Depression, so you didn't have chocolate <laughs> unless, yeah. you know, somebody worked with them. And her grandmother Anna did just that. I originally thought this story would solely focus on the men during the war, but I realized the point of Miller and Hollis and the Wilden story. The idea of Rosie the Riveter, the thesis around Leonore's interview, was that societal perspectives of working women were changing. You may recognize the emblem. A bandana-wearing woman flexes her bicep fitted in a denim work jacket. This was indeed because the war effort needed everyone available. African Americans, women, Japanese Americans, Native Americans, to name a few subjugated communities. Anna Poreca working at Miller and Hollis was just a small part of that effort, but an important one for Leonora to be inspired by. I'm probably one of the few who had a working mother that wasn't a professional woman. But uh, she, all having four daughters, said you have to learn to do something because you can't depend on a man anymore. From women who welded planes or took care of soldiers' wounds to those who prepared food for soldiers and made chocolates as gifts, it was all for an effort that ended in victory. Thanks to the women like Leonora Wilden and her mother Anna Poreca, we were able to win the war. I'm happy to have heard the expertise of Sarah Wasberg Johnson and the voices of Leonora Wilden and her daughter Susan. Thank you so much for uh, keeping the memory alive and for doing what you do. Thank you for joining us on another Object Obscure adventure, where every object has a story. There's still another story to be told. If you know anything about who this monk or Francie could be, send me an email at thatcher at object-obscura.com. Maybe there will be a part two of this episode. Thank you so much to Sarah Wasberg Johnson for sharing her food knowledge. She's writing a new book called Preserve or Perish. Check out her food podcast, History Bites, and her blog at foodhistorian.com. And finally, her Food History Happy Hour on Facebook Live. Thank you to Susan Wilden for sharing the stories about her mother Leonora and grandmother Anna. Also, thanks to Joe Shilp, Michael O'Hagan, and County College of Morris for letting me use Leonora Wilden's interview. You can actually check out her family stories on the Rosie the Riveter project page. It's like a virtual exhibit with pictures and Leonora's entire interview at archive.ccm.edu. Additional thanks to all those who responded to my emails. Beth Kimmerly, Spangler Candy Company, Tara Maharjan, Claire Ammon, Ron Toth Jr., Emma Smrecker, Michelle Paradis, Anthony J. Hyatt, and James J. Warwick. And special thanks to the North Carolina Monk family I sent letters and messages to. This was an Anchor Distributed podcast. Written, edited, scored, mixed, and fact-checked by me. The theme song is Behind the Walls by my great friend Nathany. 
check out her amazing music on Spotify and Apple Music. She does solo stuff with the name Nathany and has a group called SZN. All other song and archival credits are in the description. Go to Apple Podcasts or iTunes and give us a rating. I love feedback. It's what helps the show get better. Want to reach out to us? Well, send us a message on Facebook at Object Obscura Podcast, Instagram at Object.Obscura, and Twitter at Object Obscura. It can be about an object you want discussed on the show or about anything obscure. I will also post all the pictures of this episode's object and the people you heard voices from on each platform. Next episode comes out in one week, September 17th. Here's an ironed out clue about a shoe made of metal. So this stuff hasn't been out here in a while. It hasn't been looked at in a long time. It was a life that should have been more than what it was. See you then.